Alchemy is an ancient practice associated with science, chemistry, physics, astronomy, astrology, art, symbology, metallurgy, medicine, and philosophical analysis. And despite that these sciences were not exercised in a scientific way as known today, alchemy is the origin of modern logic. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim, dear listeners, assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh, and welcome to another episode of the Alchemy of Truth, with your host Nasr al-Khatib. Um, so welcome to our our last show this year. Actually, if Friday is still there, I probably will do another show on Friday. Welcome to our last show before Christmas. Um, hope you're all doing well, inshallah. Um, today is a special day because uh, we're all alive, alhamdulillah. So that's one special thing about it. Another special thing is because our guest today is one of our the most special uh, guests uh, for us to have. Um, there's many reasons why he's special. One reason is because, of course, uh, of his great knowledge and his great work. Uh, may Allah reward him. Another reason is because he's the first guest I had on this show. So back when this show was even not called Al- The Alchemy of Truth, it was called uh, Friday Night Live, I interviewed him and he was my first guest. So um, he holds a lot of um, value and sentiment to my heart. Uh, brother Nuruddin Limu. So brother, assalamu alaikum. Wa alaikum salam wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you too. So brother, tell us in your own words uh, about yourself and about the Train the Trainers course that you're doing as well. Um, I... I'm from Nigeria, born there and grew up there, studied in a few other places, in Scotland, in Jordan, uh, but most of my time has been in Nigeria. Mm-hmm. I studied agriculture for my first degree and master's in resource management and a diploma in Arabic. And uh, I presently spend most of my time working with the Islamic Education Trust as an assistant director and research coordinator for the Dawa Institute of Nigeria, where we conduct training programs for the capacity building of Islamic organizations and Dawa workers um, within and outside Nigeria. And one of the courses we conduct is the Train the Trainers course in Islam and Dialogue, which focuses on building the capacities of Muslims to respond to common questions that they are asked by non-Muslims, to also help them understand topics on which Muslim scholars have differed Mm -hmm. so that they are able to practice the ethics of disagreement more sincerely and to help better unity and to also help them identify the greater priorities that they should be focusing on towards a better society, a better ummah. So just to um, clarify what you're teaching when you say um, teaching them or giving them answers to questions that they're asked about non-Muslims, uh, by non-Muslims, um, we're of course we're not talking about just question and answer sessions, we're talking about a background to the whole uh, philosophy and methodology of Islamic understanding. So yes. that they don't just learn one answer, and if they ask it, if they ask it in a different way or a follow-up question, they are stuck. They actually understand the the essence of the question. Absolutely, we try to go much deeper than just uh, what you call a standard answer to a question, to a deeper understanding of the topic, the difference 
if there are any among Muslim scholars in how they understand the topic, mm -hmm. so that when answering a non-Muslim, um, you are able to say it. And sometimes the question is raised by a Muslim. And so when answering the Muslim or non-Muslim, you understand most likely where their concern is coming from. If they already hold an opinion that is different, you understand that opinion uh, and are able to be more uh, empathetic and more sensitive in how you present your position while respecting other opinions too. Yep. Um, one question I had from one of the brothers um, uh, when I was introducing you initially is for your classical Islamic education. So in regards to classical Islamic education, um, can you tell us a little bit about that as well? Um, Alhamdulillah, I have been very lucky to have a, a father and mother who have taken the study of Islam very seriously. My mother, Aisha Lemu, has written textbooks on Islam for schools in different parts of the world. Um, and uh, she continues to write. My father, Sheikh Ahmad Lemu, was, uh, when he was still working, the Grand Qadi for the Sharia court in Niger State. Um, and also he served on a number of councils of ulama um, within and outside Nigeria. Okay. And so um, they were always conducting some kind of classes for the study of Islam. So I learned a lot of fiqh, uh, in particular from my dad, tafsir, and uh, some from the sciences of hadith, ulum al-hadith. Um, a lot of comparative religion from my mother. Um, I should say my dad, alhamdulillah, he had, most of his friends were other scholars and other qadis of Sharia courts. So um, it was very useful to have that network so that when through reading, listening lec listening to lectures, I mean, growing up, there was a lot of Jamal Badwi. We learned a lot from various people. And alhamdulillah, there were always books at home. And so it wasn't um, a long there wasn't a great distance between um, your question and a fairly good answer, mm. whether at home or someone nearby. Um, so I would say for the study of Islam, most of it uh, significantly from my parents, at least earlier on. And then I would say a fair bit of reading and attending courses uh, and um, cross-checking with scholars on specific topics. Um, I soon became very interested in specific issues to do with whether it's relations with non-Muslims, whether the position of women in Islam, whether controversial issues Muslims disagreed on. And it was very helpful to look for specialists in a particular uh, topic and to learn from them and to get recommended reading by them. So, alhamdulillah, we've... Um, been very fortunate to have a good number of knowledgeable people around us. Alhamdulillah. Alhamdulillah. Um, just a, um, a quick note to our listeners uh, that if you wanted to contribute in any way, uh, you certainly can. So if you wanted to call us on Sydney, our number is 029724-3355. You can also tweet us. So our tweet, uh, our Twitter account is Alchemy of Truth. Uh, you can go to our Facebook page, uh, www.facebook.com slash Alchemy of Truth. Or you can go to our website, alchemyoftruth.com.au. 
uh, for contributions and answers. Um, so in the beginning, when I was um, preparing the show with uh, Brother Limo, I asked him, um, you know, what he wanted, and he said, let's do it about Maqasid uh, al-Sharia and the, the importance of Maqasid al-Sharia. Uh, but of course, to be able to explain what they are, we need to go back, first of all, to the very beginning. To, to the thing, to the basis that Maqasid Sharia is ingrained in, which is the Usul. So let's start with the Usul uh, first of all. Can you tell us a little bit about that? During the time of the Prophet, peace be upon him, if people had questions, they just asked the Prophet, mm. peace be upon him. And after the Prophet left, there were some of the Sahaba who were well known for their knowledge and understanding of the Quran and the Sunnah of the Prophet because they spent a lot of time with the Prophet, peace be upon him. And so if you had a question during the time of the Sahaba, you asked some of these Sahaba, and some of them were quite well-known, people like Umar, uh, anhu, um, Ali, Zaid, Mu'adh, Aisha, a number of others. Um, after the time of the Sahaba, um, when it came to what did the Prophet say, it became critical for hadith to be collected. And after the time of the Tabi'un, or that generation, you come to the period where you had some great scholars um, who were mujtahid scholars. These were scholars whose job was to analyze all the data that had been collected and to be able to answer with a degree of certainty what the Prophet would have done in a particular situation. And since the Prophet is not around, the job of the mujtahid is to give fatwa, to give an answer in the absence of the Prophet using all tools available. And the methodology that, or the equation, um, let's just say the methodology that these scholars used um, were for producing fiqh was called usul al-fiqh. Um, it's the methodology of ijtihad. It's the tools to guide reasoning and the mind in the interpretation uh, of Quran and Sunnah when addressing changing circumstances. Mm -hmm. And so um, you find when they say principles of Islamic jurisprudence or usul al-fiqh, um, scholars are referring to um, tools such as the Qur'an and the Sunnah, what they call primary sources, and secondary sources um, or tools such as ijma or qiyas, and some scholars have other tools depending on the school of thought, um, like Sadduddaraya, Daraya, um, like Amal of the people of Medina, Maslaha, Istisla, Istihsan, um, Istishab, um, various other tools um, that they use when some tools won't work. So if you look at it as a toolkit, like a carpenter's toolbox, um, if the Quran and Sunnah are silent on an issue, they would like to look into ijma. If that's silent, they would like to look into qiyas and draw analogy with something that is in the Quran or in the Sunnah or with ijma. And if there's nothing there, they would start looking for other tools, um, such as what brings benefit to the society, looking, considering consequences. And, of course, there, um, when you're looking at consequences, they would start to consider um, the overall objectives of Sharia, so as, or what we call the maqasid of Sharia, so as to make sure that whatever fatwa they end up coming to, 
or whatever answer they give to a problem, it is also in line with the goals, the objectives of Sharia, of enjoining right, forbidding wrong, bringing benefit or avoiding harm. So really, mm. usul al-fiqh is that methodology that a particular school of thought would use to arrive at its own fiqh. Uh, and uh, usul, of course, means fundamentals. Yes, uh, roots, the fundamentals, the foundation of mm-hmm. fiqh. Uh, if you look at fiqh as a fruit, mm. um, the tree is the usul. Mm. Yeah. Uh, so if usul means uh, fundamentals, maqasid means uh, the the higher purposes. Yes. Or um, basically, it, it's looking at what Allah wants with with tashriya, with uh, the Quran and the Sunnah and the ayat. What he what he ultimately wants exactly the ends yeah uh, yeah what's um, the higher intent the purpose at the end of Sharia at the end of all the fiqh mm-hmm. what do we want to see mm-hmm. what's the end exactly so um, and this is uh, something that's interesting as well that does Allah want um, adil or does he want ahsan precisely or yeah. both or both exactly, exactly. Yeah. and um, and they get to that because there are certain things that Allah has made very clear he wants. Um, Allah wants us to always stand for justice, um, uh, even if it's against our own selves, our own relatives. Um, justice is a m- major objective of Sharia. Um, uh, brotherhood is an objective of Sharia. Facilitation and making things easier is an objective of Sharia. Allah says, "Allahu yuridu lakumul yusra." Allah wants ease for you. Allah yuridu lakumul usr. He doesn't want hardship. Um, there are many makasid. Uh, they are generally classified by some of the scholars into five or six groups um, as the essential maqasid, the protection of faith, for example, that people should have the freedom to practice their religion and their faith should be practiced and there's no compulsion in religion. The protection of life, for example, the by which you mean people should be safe, there should be security, in society, people's lives should be protected, health care should be taken care of, the protection of the mind or aql, um, the mind must be supported with education, so the search for knowledge is compulsory, um, the mind should be protected from things that would affect its functioning, so the prohibition of alcohol, for example, or intoxicants or anything that would um, affect the mind, yeah. the protection of the family, of lineage, um, of children, um, with various laws surrounding inheritance, surrounding divorce, surrounding marriage to ensure that um, the environment in which children grow is a safe environment, and of course the protection of wealth and property. But as Ibn Taymiyyah puts it, um, there are more than just five, as Mm. we've mentioned. There are other objectives uh, in Sharia that you come across as you go through the Quran. Mm. Um, so uh, an example that we gave uh, before, um, which happened, I think it might have happened a year ago or during the last of the past year. There was a brother, he's a new Muslim. Uh, and so because he's a new Muslim, he still had an attachment to going to the pub and drinking. So the other people that he goes to the mosque with, he discovered that. So they um, followed him, I think, at one point, went to his place, knocked the door. He opened the door for them. They had a belt. And they told him that they were going to um, apply the had on him, the, the punishment for drinking alcohol. And I think they basically held him in bed and they whipped him with the belt 40 times. And they were telling him, we're doing this because we love you. 
Now, I'm guessing this is because in the hadith of Prophet when he saw a um, one of the Muslims, uh, he was drunk, and so he he beat that Muslim, or he, he um, asked the Sahaba to strike him uh, in that way. And I think one of the Sahaba also uh, cursed that man, and the Prophet said, don't curse him because he loves Allah and his Prophet. And so I guess, I mean, if you read that hadith, it would make sense to to do that to this man. But if we look at Maqasid Sharia, and we look at Usul Fiqh, how would this have been, um, I mean, is this valid? Is this a valid action? Um, when it comes to a subject like the Maqasid of Sharia, the intents, um, scholars don't look at the Sunnah as just being one thing. They look at the life of the Prophet, peace be upon him, and what the Prophet said and did and approved of in various capacities. So you find scholars like Ibn Qutayba, scholars like Ibn Qayyim, Imam Al-Karafi, um, uh, Imam Shatibi, uh, Ibn Ashur, classifying the role of the Prophet when it comes to legislation into various intents. And so, for example, there are things the Prophet ﷺ did in his capacity as a messenger of Allah. And... Um, you know, when he tells us how to pray, when he tells us how to fast, when he tells us how to perform our um, hajj and umrah, when he tells us this is haram and halal. So there are certain things that he says in his capacity as a messenger of Allah, as a Rasulullah. And in that case, these are things we all follow. Everybody um, takes that on board. There are certain things the Prophet ﷺ said and did in his capacity as a political leader, as a head of state. And in those areas where he functions as a head of state, assigning governors uh, to places, deciding issues to do with tax laws, um, having treaties with various communities, deciding um, who to be at peace with, when to go to war. Um, these are sunnah, but they are only for a person who is a political leader. Because the Prophet did these things doesn't mean any Muslim says, well, since the Prophet could dispatch an army, I can dispatch an army too. And since the Prophet ﷺ made treaties with these people, we're going to go and start treaties with some other country. Um, there are certain things the Prophet ﷺ did in his capacity as a judge. And in his capacity as a judge, he would give judgment on a case and punishment based on the evidence given. And in his capacity as a judge... He has the authority to say, this person's hand should be cut, this person should be imprisoned, this person should be set free, um, and this person should be punished for alcohol, for example. If you are not the judge, if you are not the person who's got the legal authority, it is not your job to say, the prophet did it, I will cut the hand of a thief, that I will sentence a person to death, that I will give somebody X number of lashes, um, this is a misappropriation of the sunnah. Uh, there are certain roles that the authorities have when it says, that you obey Allah and the Prophet and those in authority, because there are certain things that only those in authority have the authority to do. It's not one where everybody is the judge, anybody can be jury, anybody can be um, the executor. Yeah. Of punishments. So when you look into the Maqasid and how scholars classify 
Hadith or the Sunnah, there are certain things the Prophet did in his capacity as just a human being trying to advise others to do good. There are certain things he did in his capacity as a human being who was an Arab living at his time with certain things he would like to eat, certain things he didn't like to eat. He didn't like to eat a particular type of lizard, mm. for example. He didn't stop others from doing it, but he just didn't have an appetite for that type of thing. But it wasn't religious in nature. Just um, a clarification again here, brother, that uh, this understanding is the classical understanding. Yes. So this is not something new that no, you no, yourself no, no, no. came up with. This is a thousands of or hundreds of years of... Oh, yes. I mean, scholarship. Muslim scholars um, uh, never assumed that the role of enjoining right and forbidding wrong in every aspect of life was the role of everybody else. You know, um, there were things that a judge could do and only a judge could do. Um, whether it was tied to divorce, whether it was tied to punishment, there are certain political responsibilities that are the job of only a head of state, not a judge. And so when the Prophet, peace be upon him, for example, and you see this in the fatwas and where scholars would sometimes differ, where the Prophet would prohibit, for example, the consumption of horses, that you cannot eat um, horses, uh, scholars would differ on was that something he said in his capacity as a prophet, which meant it was for all time and all place? Or was that something he said in his capacity as a political leader, preparing for battle, and therefore did not want people to eat horses, which were important for transportation purposes? So, pending on how the scholars classify the actions of the Prophet, it allows them to get a deeper understanding of why he did what he did, and whether what he did was tied to particular time and place or whether it was meant for us for all time. So when the Prophet, peace be upon him, um, take horses again, would say no zakat should be collected on horses. And yet during the time of Umar, Umar institutes a law where he does collect zakat on horses. Um, one could easily say, wait a minute, but the Prophet said this. Why would Umar go against him? Uh, isn't Umar following the Prophet? Who does Umar radiallahu anhu think he is? No, it's because Umar understood why the Prophet said so and that the Prophet said so in his capacity as a head of state. Now you've got a new head of state who is also interested in what is in the best interest of the Ummah, who also sees the situation has changed and the policy left by the earlier leader um, would no more be achieving its maqasid, its objective. And in this situation where, like during the time of the Prophet, peace be upon him, the Prophet tried to encourage more horses because they were valuable assets. By the time of Umar, there were so many horses and some people who were um, dealing with horses made more money in a week than people who were uh, managing camels. So Umar looked at it as since Sharia's objective is to expand the pool of zakat, to bring more benefit to those who need it, um, the situation has changed from what it was at the time of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. So it's not that Umar went against the Prophet, no. Umar understood why the Prophet said so and realized that in his situation, circumstances had changed. And so you find quite a number of other examples of policies that Umar would bring up during a period of famine, he put a moratorium on the HUD of um, stealing, the punishment for theft. Yes. And 
The reason is because he knew the purpose of the punishment. And during a period of famine, if you're going to cut the hands of thieves, you'll end up cutting the hands of the poor who have been forced by circumstances to steal. And this is according to a verse in the Quran. So Umar stopped a verse in the Quran. Exactly. Even exactly. The injunction is in the Quran. Umar suspended it because he knew its objective. So the maqasid um, is very important, both in knowing um, what is the objective that the Quran tries to achieve by certain policies? What's the objective that the Prophet tried to achieve by certain injunctions? Why did he do certain things? By classifying these into various categories, scholars are able to know which aspect of the Sunnah is binding on us, which is related to time, which one is optional, uh, which one just shows us the hikmah how the Prophet did it, but not that we need to do exactly the same thing in our circumstance, but we need to achieve the same objectives. So it's an area where really qualified scholars uh, move into. It's not for any Tom, Dick and Harry or uh, just anybody to go into, but um, it's definitely a fascinating area that moves us away from the simplistic approach to saying everything is sunnah, everything has to be done without realizing the classical scholars in this field have um, uh, classified the sco- the the maqasid. Mm-hmm. Sorry, uh, looked at the maqasid of all the yes. actions of the sunnah. And so, sunnah is um, it's not all sunnah that is binding. There are certain things the prophet said or did that applied to him only as a prophet, you know, mm. um, but didn't apply to others too. Okay. Uh, and it's very important as well because I remember um, listening to, for example, um, people who would tell the, I mean, you know, these tapes that uh, have the story of the Seer of Prophet of the Prophet or reading the Seer of Prophet where it would reach a point where it would say the Prophet here forbade donkeys. That's why it's haram for us to eat donkeys, right? But I mean, as as you mentioned, there was a specific context for it, and it doesn't fit with the maqasid or with the usul. So then it's not haram. Yeah, it's it's a this is an area where people have to be very careful about just identifying a hadith. They don't study the context, they don't study other hadith, they haven't looked at how did the Sahaba and earlier scholars understand the context of the hadith, um, and what are the other types of evidences that are required to reach a conclusion on say, for example, eating donkeys or um, whether dogs are pure or mm. not and these other issues. Or even even going to something which is more practical. A lot of people have attacked the fatwa of uh, Sheikh al-Qarawi about buying a house for uh, people living in the West, even if it's an it's a interest-based house. Um, so, I mean, I actually remember people who would, when I would discuss this with them, of course, I don't have the religious knowledge to go very deeply into it, but they would sell, tell me, for example, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, when it's talking about riba, says, So, allow for a war with Allah and His Prophet. And then he would ask me, are you ready to wage war with Allah and His Prophet? But, I mean, that's only if you read that verse only and nothing else, right? Yeah. Um there are definitely things that are clearly haram um, and there's no argument about those things that are haram that are clear from the Quran or the Sunnah once they're explicitly clear. But so take a thing like pork. Nobody's arguing about whether eating pig meat is halal or haram. It's clear in the Quran it's haram. But what they can argue about is how hungry do you need to be before it becomes permissible to eat pork 
out of darura, out of necessity. What should be the nature of that necessity? And to what extent, you know, how much pork would you be allowed to eat if you are in a situation of necessity? And because the scholars differed, um, and these are not... You know, these are not scholars who don't know what they're talking about. This is an area, uh, Gardawi quotes particularly the Hanafi uh, school, and how the Hanafis, in consideration of the fact that um, in areas where Muslims are a minority, where the rules of law, the policies of the state um, are riba-based, um, these scholars view Muslims as going to be at a perpetual disadvantage if they are to insist on laws and economic models that don't exist because you do not have Islamic alternatives. And so they view the riba alternative as one that allows the ummah, like eating of pork, to be able to reach a level of economic strength where they can now put in place halal alternatives. In other words, it's viewed as an exit strategy. But a lot depends on how it is articulated. And you will always find people who say, no, but the darura is not serious enough. You know, I, I'm ready, just like with pork, I'm ready to go for another day without eating. Another person says, I would rather do two more days without eating. Uh, somebody says, I can't last more than a day. Where the scholars who have studied this area, particularly Mujtahid scholars, have differed, the, our responsibility as followers is to respect the difference. We may not feel comfortable with their conclusion on a particular topic. We feel more comfortable with another scholar. But it is part of the etiquettes of learning. Just as with any field, if you're not a doctor, you don't criticize a doctor. I mean, what did you study? If you disagree with a doctor, just say, I feel more comfortable with another doctor. But don't talk as if you've got the qualifications to assess the qualifications of a doctor when you've not even studied medicine, let alone reached a level where you are an authority in that field. What if you've Googled stuff about medicine? Can you criticize well, a doctor then? There's no shake Google kind of thing. Um, <laughs> I and think the reality would be back to differ. Yeah, you, you would precisely. I mean... You check on Google and you'll find other scholars who give different answers. And if you're more comfortable with somebody else, uh, more convinced by somebody else, then of course your actions will be judged by your intentions. Um, we shouldn't blindly follow scholars either if you honestly believe another opinion is stronger. Yeah. So, okay. But we should be courteous and respectful about the differences where they exist. Uh, I've got a question here. Uh, where do the scholars draw the line when dealing with maqasid? Uh, where does it stop being a discussion about maqasid and start being about reformation of rulings? Um, usually in the hierarchy of um, usul, the first is to see whether there is a clear ruling from the Qur'an. Yeah. If the Qur'an says something is prohibited, then it stands as prohibited. And it's only a darura where necessity would allow, and this is again from the Qur'an, where the Qur'an puts an exception, that if you are driven by necessity, then yes, you can relax uh, some of these laws temporarily. Um, where there is sunnah, um, that there is no doubt over its authenticity, and no doubt over its meaning, then that also becomes binding. And again, only if you have the rural situations would you 
um, contravene that temporarily. Um, it is when you come to the other tools uh, that maqasid then become even more important because these are tools Ijma, you've got differing opinions about Ijma, the types of Ijma, the binding nature, uh, the definition, and how do you ensure or how are you sure it's been reached? Giyas, um, another um, uh, area where scholars differ on its use, its types, its conditions, etc. And so when it comes to Maqasid, there are certain Maqasid that are Mu'tabara. They are explicit Maqasid uh, mentioned in the Quran like justice for example any ruling that is going to replace justice with injustice um, would be considered wrong why it has missed the point and the point is clear there are those rulings that are clearly not makasid like injustice um, anything to involve cheating or deception um, we know that's definitely not a makasid of sharia but then you have certain makasid or maslaha that are what they call masali al-mursala um, where they're beneficial, but we can't prove their benefit directly from the Qur'an or the Sunnah. And this is where scholars of uh, Maqasid, such as Imam al-Ghazali, uh, Shatibi, number of these scholars, would say, then, for such types of Maqasid, we need a greater certainty to link them with the Qur'an and the Sunnah by Qiyas. In other words, we should have some analogy we can draw to say, this is also a maqasid because we are certain in other cases or uh, it is similar to other cases where uh, sharia is trying to protect something so to um, guide maqasid they usually would also use qiyas um, where the quranic text or the sunnah is not explicit in making that a clear maqasid um, now, this um, we're talking about this as a an essential aspect of understanding Islam and Sharia. So, when when we're talking about Sharia and what many non-Muslims understand, and unfortunately here we have um, one type of a person. The UK has another type of a person. This person is a person who's very proud of his Sunnah clothing, and whose knowledge is the most literalist knowledge you can find. So, for example, when I mentioned. Uh, the belt beating uh, incident that happened. Unfortunately, media also finds these people very appealing. And so they went to this person and they asked him, do you agree with this? And he said, yes, of course, it's in the Quran. So then my question is this. Um, how important is it regarding the manifest problems of its ignorance? So in, in the ignorance of it, I mean, because for me, myself, uh, it took me a very long time to, to reach this understanding. Because when you first get to learn Islam from a specific group of people or in a specific way, you get to understand that the Islam is only Quran and Sunnah and nothing else. Um, it's absolutely important because if you neglect the maqasid, um, then you're shooting without knowing where the target is. Um, you're traveling on a road without knowing where you want to end up. You're just following the road sign. So you're a good driver. You're keeping the law, but you're lost. Um, you've, you've gone the wrong way. But just because you've not broken any road rules does not mean you are guided. One of the uses of maqasid is to guide the mufti or the mujtahid towards making sure that those objectives that Sharia is interested in achieving are achieved while using the tools of Qiyas, Ijma, and all the other 
tools we've mentioned. Um, in the case you mentioned, um, supposing they then said, you know what, you've committed another crime and um, we will execute you, then what? Um, what's the evidence? It goes to court and they are considered as having murdered somebody. And it becomes a major thing. If you decided you were going to beat somebody because he dr drunk alcohol, even if it is with his consent, um, what happens if while beating the person, he dies? You know, then what? And you end up creating bigger problems than you're trying to solve, this the sunnah. I mean, I think uh, in the time of Amr, uh, that his son was caught drinking in Egypt and Amr ibn al-As did not apply the punishment to Umar called him back he was sick Omar struck him and said if you see the prophet tell him Omar applies the the hudud and his son died so all these things unfortunately even though they are wrong there is still some example of it I mean this is some sort of a, a reverse qiyas isn't it yeah but one would distinguish between a leader who has the role of a judge from anybody on the roadside who decides he's going to implement a punishment at the time of the Prophet, peace be upon him, what the Prophet taught, if somebody had done that type of a mistake, somebody did um, something even more grievous like zina, you don't come and say you want your punishment. What was taught was since Allah has veiled you and protected you, then take it that you should just do tawbah, seek Allah's forgiveness. Um, the objective of the uh, sharia is not to hunt down people who have... Um, committed crimes if they themselves are remorseful and um, would want Allah to forgive. So you find in many cases the Prophet ﷺ and the Sahaba um, overlooking uh, and trying to even overlook more wrongs that were done in society. You look at uh, something like zina. Why would Sharia put four male witnesses um, or let's even just say four witnesses for zina um, if you really wanted to catch somebody? So the objective of Sharia is really more about reform uh, and it's not for people to take the law into their own hands, particularly when, I mean, even in an Islamic state, that's not your job, let alone when you are not in an Islamic state. So it's not mm. your job in many ways here either. I'm reminded by a story of uh, Abu Hanifa, Imam Abu Hanifa, um, that he had a person who was his neighbor who would drink every night and he would recite a poem um, which is that they've uh, lost me and what a great man I am that they lost and he was then taken to court because of drinking and Abu Hanifa went and told them uh, you can't take him to court you can't charge him because he's at his house even though Abu Hanifa could hear him so it's it's quite yeah. I mean it, it really um, protected it's quite surprising as yeah. well yeah um, definitely there are certain things that you can't intercept. Uh, people have the right to choose between doing right and doing wrong. And there are those things which they do which have the potential to harm others. Uh, and in those cases, society has to be protected. And so there are certain punishments that deter people uh, from those type of offenses. But um, back onto the question of Magasid, um, what is important for a lot of us in the study of this subject area is to appreciate that particularly in areas, actually all rules in Sharia um, have their maqasid. Some we may know, some we may not know. 
And sometimes it's with greater study that you actually begin to appreciate. Sometimes it's by experiencing certain circumstances that you appreciate more the wisdom of Sharia, the hikmah behind certain injunctions. Um, on the question of the validity of fatwa um, when it neglects maqasid, um, you have scholars like uh, Isid bin Abdul Salam, Azuddin uh, bin Abdul Salam, uh, nicknamed the Sultan al Ulama, who said any fatwa that misses the maqasid of Sharia is batil, it's null and void. Uh, Imam Shatibi uh, made it clear any fatwa um, that does not consider maqasid is null and void. Um, you know, particularly in the areas of mu'amalat, where it's dealing with social transactions, the, the objectives are generally clear what these things are supposed to achieve. Um, it, it is very important for people to, when looking at fatwas given to their environment, when they sense that this fatwa is not solving our problem, this is just compounding our problem, to not just insist on implementing and following but just like in medicine, if the medicine is not working, you seek another doctor, you know, get another opinion, get a second opinion, get a third opinion, mm -hmm. uh, look for the specialist in the area. And so when you find a fatwa really not solving a problem and you seem to be on a roundabout, you're not going anywhere, um, the need to look again at that fatwa, in what way has the fatwa missed its objective and why is it that we're not able to get ourselves out of a particular problem. I mean, if this is the classical understanding of, of what the tashri'ah is and what the maqasid are, that means that currently in the Muslim world, we need to do a serious paradigm shift in the way that people think about it. Because now it seems that they're more hell-bent on applying the rulings rather than giving people their rights or, you know, uh, applying or, uh, you know, according to the uh, maqasid. Yeah, I mean, if I look at Nigeria, which I know pretty well, um, when people say they want to implement Sharia, it has become necessary for you to want to know what exactly does that mean? Um, is it just we're going to have some hard punishments and, you know, have more things on the news about somebody whose hand is cut? Um, and is that fair to cut the hand of somebody who stole a cow? When in the same society, somebody is stealing millions and billions worth of... Um, Public funds. Public funds. And that person goes scot-free. Uh, and uh, is it fair to um, talk about it as being Sharia when basic things like healthcare, the protection of life, roads are allowed to get so dilapidated, people die every day in accidents unnecessarily, um, you come to hospital and there's no medicine. Why? Because the protection of life seems not to be an objective of the state. Um, the protection of the mind and the enhancement of the human educational level seems not to be an objective of the state. Nobody's building schools. Nobody's improving schools. Nobody's improving security. Um, nobody's improving wealth uh, or its distribution. Welfare is not well taken care of. There's no support for the hungry. There's no um, support for agriculture. And so when the objectives of the state seem not to be in line with the objectives of Sharia, you have to actually ask yourself, 
what exactly is this? Sharia is not there to just punish people, but to improve society. Um, yes, a punishment is part of the tools of people respecting law, but when you find that is what people bring forward, the moment you say Sharia, people think had. But punishment is a very small segment of Sharia, and had is a very small segment of punishments. So it's unfortunate that the emphasis, instead of developing society so that you will have an environment in which people will not commit crimes, um, unfortunately, some, which is usually for political motives, to win more votes, prefer to do certain symbolic acts that make the masses feel attached. This is what we want. They support the party. But in reality, um, it's, a, it's an unfortunate sham. Uh, but at the same time, it's growing. You know, Now people, when you say you want Sharia, people want to see your manifesto. How many schools are you going to rehabilitate? Um, what are you going to do about the hospital? How many scholarships are you giving? Um, will we know... Uh, will people declare their accounts? Will we know how much uh, uh, government officials have in their accounts? So people are beginning to wake up, uh, which is, I think, a positive part of it. Um, final question, unfortunately, we've only got a, a few minutes. Uh, final question is, of course, this is not something to study for application purposes for the general populace. I mean, this is something for ulama to understand. Uh, so, but for people like myself who are very interested in this sort of topic and I would like to read more about it to gain this understanding and appreciation of it. Would you recommend any certain books uh, or, or writers or scholars about this uh, topic? Um, definitely in English um, probably three readings that are very useful. Um, one of them is in a chapter Call of a book called To Be a European Muslim oh, by Tariq Ramadan. Yeah. Uh, and he has a chapter there on some general rulings of Usul al-Fiqh, which is a very uh, basic introduction. Another very good book introducing Usul al-Fiqh is called um, Islamic Law, uh, Theory and Practice. No, there's another name for it, I think, by a gentleman called Michael Mumisa. A slightly, not slightly, but significantly more advanced reading, quite heavy, but um, probably the best in English, is a book called The Principles of Islamic Jurisprudence by Hashim Kamali. There are some audio tapes called The Foundation uh, of Our Methodology uh, by Sheikh Abdullah bin Bayah. Uh, translated by Hamza Yusuf, yes, yes. Um, a very good introduction to Usul al-Fiqh. Um, for Maqasid, and these books touch a little on Maqasid, but for Maqasid in particular, there's a very good book called A Beginner's Guide to Maqasid by Jasir Auda. He's got a bigger version of the book, Maqasid Sharia, same author. Um, another, actually, after that, you've got quite a number of other very good books on mm. Makassid. Kamali has something on Makassid Sharia also. Uh, mm. He has a chapter in his book, Principles of Islamic mm. Jurisprudence, introducing Makassid. Yeah. Abu al-Fadl also mentions it in one of his books. Uh, Khalid Abu al-Fadl, uh, particularly in his book, um, Speaking in God's Name. Yes. The earlier chapters in mm. the book go into some reasonable depth mm. in introducing usul. What about uh, priorities of the Muslims for al-Qardawi? Um, priorities of the Muslim in the coming phase by Yusuf al-Qardawi looks more on what they call awlawiyat, the priorities, mm. uh, and how they are balanced 
what we should be focusing on and less on the technical subject of usul and maqasid. But in that sense, yes, it is related to maqasid objectives, but more interested in the ranking of um, what should Muslims be focusing on. So it's a very, definitely it's a good book too in that regard. That's great. Jazakumullah khairan. Unfortunately, we come to the end of our show. Um, if, if we could, we could have, we would have stayed another hour with you, inshallah. But uh, Jazakumullah khairan. Thank you very much, uh, Brother Nuruddin, our Nigerian prince, uh, for uh, gracing uh, our studios and for giving us your time and your efforts. Um, thank you also to our listeners uh, for contributing and asking questions and for listening to us. Um, inshallah, I'll have another show next week. Uh, I will let you know through Twitter and Facebook. Um, and please uh, join our Twitter and Facebook to follow us up, inshallah. Um, the podcast will be coming very soon. Um, I will have it on um, the website, www.thealchemyoftruth.com.au. And uh, so now we come to the end of our show. This is your host, Nasr Khatib, bidding you assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.